Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports Professor Rick Harrow inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, and you're on the record. Big stuff happening this week, plus an interview with former ESPN chief executive and now Syracuse athletic director John Wildhack. But before we start that, let's, as we normally do, opening drive the top four weekly stories of the week. Number one, Sports Illustrator's publisher guts its staff. The future is unclear. Illustrated Sports Illustrated, $110 million purchase from Meredith by Authentic, the licensing group, five years ago. The Arena Group was supposed to publish in print and digital in an email obtained by Front Office Sports. The move comes three weeks after Arena missed a $3.75 million payment that breached the company's licensing deal, which immediately triggered a $45 million licensing million dollar fee due immediately to Authentic, according to an SEC filing. Bottom line is the staff was told to leave, told to come back, told to work till notice, mixed signals, but the founder of Five Hour Energy introduced himself to the employees of Arena, talking about how this was the firm that was going to save Sports Illustrated for future generations, and it's uh, it talked about how they may purchase roughly 65% of Arena, a $50 million deal, which went down in August, but then moving forward after that. Got to tell you, I grew up watching, collecting, reading all of Sports Illustrated. And even though I'm hopelessly outdated by talking about the print version, I'm really not with the digital version. Let's just really hope that they find a way to move it out of the conflict they're in and continue to publish. That's number one. Number two, Texas records record revenue with the NCAA. More to come. Longhorns obviously one play away from reaching their first national championship game in the CFP era. There's still at least some work to be done between the white lines. Texas continues to make its mark off the field. University's athletic department reports an NCAA record $271 million in operating revenue during its 2023 fiscal year, nearly $32 million more than the school's 2022 fiscal year, and it's uh, more than the previous high of 251 reported by Ohio State in 2022. Why? They opened a new $375 million basketball arena, the Moody Center, and advanced to the Elite Eight in the men's NCAA tournament. School's revenue should continue to grow when it reports figures from the 2024 fiscal year because of the football team. And this summer, Texas moves to the SEC along with Oklahoma, more than $20 million in media rights revenue in addition on an annual basis. The 2023 fiscal year, also a record-breaking one for the athletic departments at LSU and Tennessee, which both topped $200 million in revenue for the first time. LSU, 200.46. Tennessee, 202.09. That's number two. Number three, again in college sports, 
the U.S. House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Innovation, Data, and Commerce convened a pivotal hearing titled NIT Playbook, Proposal to Protect Student-Athletes' Deal-Making Rights. Session brought to the forefront the pressing need for a uniform national standard governing the NIL rights of student-athletes. The hearing saw influential lawmakers and key stakeholders in college sports engage in a detailed discussion about the complexities and challenges surrounding NIL, the idea of a student-athlete as employee, and the implications of pay-per-play in the context of current disjointed state laws. Many congressmen talked about illegalities and, at the same time, a proposed Fair College Sports Act discussed during the hearing aimed to establish clear rules to protect young athletes and promote opportunities while preserving the essence of amateur sports. The act seeks to preempt state NIL laws and address critical issues such as the employment status of student-athletes. It also recognizes the academic importance of student innovation, gaming, and esports, and said by offering free advice in high schools, we're not just talking about opening doors, we're talking about providing fairness to all according to plan. NIL really given its hearing in Congress. That's number three. Number four, Robert Kraft, pioneering 30 years of philanthropy with the Patriots. Very important issue philanthropically. The Kraft family's commitment to community and service profoundly impacted the New England region through various initiatives. The establishment of the New England Patriots Charitable Foundation, one of his first actions after purchasing the team, foundation supported thousands of local nonprofits through grants, athlete appearances, and donations, focusing on family health care, homelessness, hunger, and all issues that Robert and now Josh Kraft and Jonathan Kraft have become really involved in. The philanthropy all about financial support, inspiring volunteerism and community engagement. On behalf of his late wife, Myra, the Myra Kraft Community MVP Awards, it is something for all to be proud of. And that's number four. The inside story of philanthropy, business, law, marketing, sports administration. John Wildhack was at Syracuse University from 76 to 80, Newhouse School of Public Communications. He started with ESPN, 36 years production assistant, coordinating producer, director of event production. He did the first NFL game in 1987 and the first college football game in 1984 with ESPN. Rises to vice president of programming and production. 50,000 hours of on-air content annually, programming acquisitions, rights holder relationships for marketing and scheduling, strategic program program planning. He did it all. And in, 19, in 2016, he becomes the 11th athletic director at Syracuse University. 20 sports, 600 student athletes, 2022 men's national championship rowing and national championships in other sports, including 23 conference championships and what he's proud of, a 3.16 GPA cumulatively, the seventh consecutive better than 3.0. He'll talk about a lot of that. He'll talk about naming of facilities and on and on. 
And the bottom line is John Walhack has perspectives in not only the media area, but obviously the athletic area as well. Here's John Wildhack. He goes to school at Syracuse, uh, an orange through and through, and graduates the Newhouse School of Public Communication. Uh, all the famous broadcasters in the world uh, went there. John chose a, a different route. Uh, when did you know that your route would be on the other side of the camera? This is a true story, Rick. It was about two weeks into my freshman year here at Syracuse, and you know we had to do like our first tape, right? So you do your first tape, and then we played back the tapes in class and there's probably maybe 30 kids in the class. And, you know, I'm watching some of these tapes and like, wow, that guy's really good. Wow. She's really good. He's really good. She's really good. You know, my tape plays, I'm like, I'm not that good. Um, so literally I changed my major the next day to television, radio film. And um, it ultimately proved to be a pretty pretty good decision as it turned out. And once I really got in the control room and just got exposed to, to that in the live production, um, that's, that's where my passion, you know, resided. And ultimately I, I pursued my passion. Yeah. But listen, if Tariko and some of the other guys felt the same way, uh, the broadcast booth would be of far inferior quality. So good that they did their thing and you did your thing, right? Abs- absolutely. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, I'm sure Mike's tape, first tape here when he was a freshman was probably amazing. And there were probably Sean McDonough's and, and Noah Eagle, our most uh, our most recent graduate, um, who's doing great things here. But uh, no, it turned out it turned out to be a good decision for me. Well, a great decision for ESPN as well. Uh, Thirty six years. Uh, tell me yes. about the uh, the the uh, immediate rise from production assistant in was it 80 81 82 to coordinating producer of sunday night football how quickly did that happen and did you did you kind of plot that meteoric rise first and then we'll talk about others later i didn't i didn't plot it and and i've always told people is is you know you, you, everybody wants to grow their career everybody wants to have success um but the way you do that is is you got to really be fixated on what your current job and responsibility is do that, do that extraordinarily well, try to do some other things in addition to that. And if you do that, and if you're a good person and you get along with people, you'll get noticed and you'll have an opportunity to, to advance your career. Um, when I started ESPN, it was October 1980. Uh, the company was 13 and a half months old. It was basically a startup at that time. And in the early days, um, the good news was, is, you know, there was, there was room to do things and to try things and you were provided opportunities. Um, we also did, it's one of the great, I think one of the great uh, culture characteristics of ESPN is you did whatever needed to be done to get shows on the air. So there was, there's a great camaraderie, great spirit, entrepreneurial spirit. And I think that drove the company culture for a long, long time. Um, as long as, as long as I was there and um I was just fortunate to have really great opportunities presented to me. Uh, Bill Fitz was, Bill Fitz is uh, in the broad, Sports Broadcasting Hall of Fame as he should be, one of the greatest producers ever in our business. He was an unbelievable boss because I, many of my peers were like me, young, out of school, you know, relatively inexperienced professionally. And Bill taught us, he challenged us, um, he gave us, he gave us uh, latitude. Um, he supported us, and and I owe 
clearly that first part of my career, I'm forever indebted to uh, Bill Fitz for his support, his guidance, and his mentorship. Before we go to Syracuse, uh, give me a compare and contrast for a minute. Uh, You're not in the media world at the network side now, but you certainly are from the university side, and we have a complete change in evolution. Let's streaming, new media, whatever you're calling it, the snackables versus long form. Is it harder to assess the business plan and make it successful today than it was, let's say, in 1984 when we're talking about the first NFL games? Uh, Or is it easier? Just compare for me. I think it's probably more challenging now uh, in the, you know, the media businesses. It's a, it's the, the, the business itself is challenged in so many different ways, you know, back, you know, back in kind of the early days or in the nineties, you know, ESPN and, and for a long period of time and the cable networks, you know, they had this, you know, incredible dual revenue stream business. It was advertising sales and it was, you know, distribution fees they were receiving from the various, you know, cable cable operators from, um, uh, you know, from DirecTV um, and other DBS operators. Um, and, and that, you know, that was that, you know, frankly, that gave a huge competitive advantage to us. And I think when you see the erosion and the loss of subscribers and the multi-channel environment that we've seen over the past six years, you see the increase in streaming, as you've seen, there's there's the business is morphing and what it exactly morphs into, I think, is still to be determined. But there was a period of time there where, where 20 years where, you know, those is the number of subscribers grew up to 100 million is where ESPN tapped out um, 100 million in your in you're extracting you know, subscription fees from that. And then you've got another pool of money in your ad- advertising sales. It was a marvelous, marvelous, um, you know, uh, uh, business model and, and incredibly, incredibly successful. You become the 11th athletic director and Syracuse's history in 2016. Uh, you were particularly qualified, I know, because of your expertise in media. We see a lot of that happening. You know, it's interesting that uh, Mike Oresco has some of the same stuff at, at CBS and's gone on to run the American. But there seems to be this affinity to grabbing media folks and making sure the extra expertise is in the media background, in addition to traditional management skills. Uh, will that continue in the future as the media rights continue to proliferate? I think there'll be a mix of that. Um, Tony Petiti is a great example yeah, a good of that. Example. Um, yeah. You know, Pete, Pete, Pete Pavacqua. Yeah. Yeah. I've known ten, yeah. I've known Tony for a long, long time. Uh, Pete Pavacqua, um, PGA of America, USGA, NBC, obviously. So I think in certain situations there will be. And, um, you know, we, we maybe we bring a little bit of a different perspective um, than, than some of our peers do. And, and hopefully that can be, you know, that that could be a positive for the conference um, or for in the case, you know, Tony's case, the Big Ten. Um, for Pete's case, Notre Dame, and, and for me, for Syracuse as well. And, you know, there's such a mix, and the media component is so important to college athletics. And obviously football and, you know, in men's basketball gets most of the attention. But one of the things you look at is the growth of, of Olympic sports in college athletics. And you see that on the ACC network, and you see it you know, on other networks as well. And you see the increased ratings, whether it's be for the NSA Women's Basketball Tournament, 
um, you know, whether it be for men's and women's lacrosse, whether it be for volleyball, whether it's, um, you know, the FCS, uh, you know, football championship playoffs, you know, media and conferences and schools, you know, there's, there's a lot that, there's a lot that commingles there, Rick. Yeah. And, uh, as you took this on, uh, had you known, well, nobody, nobody would know. Had you known we're currently waking up every morning to conference musical chairs, uh, a reduction of the portal uh, period or whatever is going to happen with it, the NIL proliferation, uh, would you have turned over and said, all right, I'm going to spend five more years or 10 more years at ESPN? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I don't. You know, maybe I would have gone to work at the pro shop at our golf club. Yeah, or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but it is. You know, it's, I, a, it's a changing industry, obviously. Well, it is, and there's you know there's been more change in the past thirty months in college sports, and I, and I would argue in the past thirty years, you know, since really the '84 Supreme Court ruling, which opened up, you know, the, the proliferation of of, foot, of college football being televised when Georgia and, and Oklahoma won their case against the Supreme Court. Since that time. What's occurred in the last 30 months um, has been incredible in terms of transfer portal, in terms of conference realignment, in terms of NIL, et cetera, that type of thing. And candidly, it's been a really fluid environment. And I think when you're in that type of environment, again, I think the media world's in that, you need to you need to adapt and you need to figure out how, in, in our case, all right, how does Syracuse thrive in, in a fluid environment? How do we help and work with the ACC and the 14 other members in the conference office to make sure that the ACC thrives as well. And it's a, uh, it's a challenge, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's also it, in some ways it, it energizes you because are there opportunities there um, that maybe weren't there before, or all right, if the portal is going to be here, how do you use the portal is a, is a positive element in our recruiting toolbox. Right. As opposed to just kind of sitting around and, well, we don't like the portal. Well, it's, it's not going to change. You know, as you said, it may go from 40, 60 days to 45, but the transfer portal is going to stay right in some shape or form. We know that NIL is, too. So to me, it's how do you adapt and, and how do you best have success as you navigate through this conference realignment? You all knew pretty much where you were going to be. But so when you have your naming discussions with the JMA wireless people, to replace the name of the carrier dome, and you ended up getting 118 million. It was tremendous. Uh, did were there ever kind of turbulent issues about where you're going to be in 10 years, and what's the media landscape going to look like, and and uh, you know how many impressions am I going to get in that building now? Because who knows what's going to happen with college athletics? How, how do you maneuver that kind of negotiation? We had we had conversations in in regards to that, and you know we. The, the fact that the ACC, that we've got a media rights agreement um, through 2036 with ESPN, that every school signed the grant of rights, so they've granted their media rights to the conference, I think provides us some stability. We could go to James and say, hey, you know, this, this is what we look, this is what we're going to look like the next 10 years. Here are the non-conference schedules you've already built out for the next five or six years. So, um what was what was most important in, in that negotiation was impressing upon what a unique facility the dome is because we play five sports there football both basketball is both lacrosse so there's 60 events roughly 60 events a year and they're all televised nationally in some way shape or form either on a linear service or on a streaming service some are televised internationally as well so 
what we could do is we went to Jamie and he'd say, this is an incredibly unique facility and because of the volume of, of telecasts that we have and or streaming telecasts that we have, we can provide you exposure that no other college naming rights partner can match. You know, you're, as you, you put the concept together, the specifics, the over 300 live events and the thousand hours of, of content with the ACC network and beyond, but the kind of intangible that you know how to run a television studio that happens to be a dome stadium too. I'm sure that carried it over the top as well. Well, that, you know, that certainly helped. And just, you know, again, the ACC network's been a great success in the distribution of the ACC network, you know, and we, we use that and we used it with data and we shared the data with JMA. You know, the other thing that they did is, and we're working very closely with them, is they did the 5G out of SoFi Stadium. They did the 5G to Legion Stadium. That's what they do. They're doing it here now. So by January 1st, 2024, we will be the most connected college facility in the country. And it's going to allow our fans to really share their experiences on a real-time basis. There's going to be a lot of things. I think it's going to allow us to do it and enhance the fan experience. So part of it was just there was synergy between what we wanted, what we were doing, the exposure we could provide, and a business that JMA was in was providing 5G technology to you know, new facilities such as SoFi, such as Allegiant, and to their namesake, the JMA Wireless Dome. You know, the interesting thing about dome naming transformations, and, I've, you know, we've I, I've done a lot, a lot of them is that that uh, the second in always bears the burden of trying to out uh, strip the confusion from the transition from the first in. Uh, this is a case, I think, where the marketing will look at a new birth and people will refer to the carrier dome as the old building and the JMA wireless dome as the new building. It also helps with the capital improvements. I assume that's one of the things that you strove for when you did a new naming rights deal. Absolutely. And we, you know, we had the tangible proof is, Hey, we're going to put $130 million into the building, um, which we've done. Um, we're going to put more money into the building over the next 12 months. We're going to reseat the entire arena. So every seat will be a chairback seat. Um, we're going to build an indoor tailgate area of about 45,000 square feet, Myron Victory Court, which will feed right into the dome. Um, so we've got a number of enhancements, you know, in addition to what we've already done. And that shows JMA, I think, the commitment that the university has to athletics. We understand how important Syracuse athletics is to the community. JMA is based here in Syracuse. And, and Rick, they could they could move their company any to any city in the country, and, and they would do so and be received very favorably. I think just there, there are so many things here that just were natural fits uh, between between Syracuse and JMA. And, um, you know, we're, we're a little over a year into the partnership, and it's been a great partnership. And, um, yeah, I've gotten to know John Mezzalunga, the founder and CEO of JMA, really well, and John's become a good friend. His team's been great to work with. Our team's been great to work with. And, um, to me, this is kind of the, a textbook example of what a naming rights relationship should be. Your other bottom line is to keep all 20 sports and 600 student athletes happy. And you mentioned it earlier that, you know, football and especially with you guys, basketball, it takes more than center stage. But you're as focused and intensely committed to those 20 sports, the other 18, as you are college football and basketball, right? Yeah, we have an obligation. We have close to 600 student athletes and your point 20 sports. And we have an obligation to provide every 
every student athlete the best experience possible they can when they're here at Syracuse from an academic perspective, from an athletic perspective to, you know, helping them grow as individuals. So when they leave Syracuse, and I say this whenever recruits and or, or parents of recruits in particular, like, hey, well, you know, what do you do? I said, we're in the business of developing young people that happen to be great athletes. And your son or daughter, if they come to Syracuse, when they leave, is that they're prepared to have success, whatever their next endeavor is in their life. That includes if they're good enough to play professionally, we need to be able, we need to be able to prepare them for the rigors of professional sport competition, whether it's you know the NFL, the NBA, the WNBA, um, the PEL, you know, you name it, you know, uh, MLS. So um, we're we're we are deeply committed to that. We have a great staff who's incredibly passionate, and we look at developing you know, the person holistically, just not as an athlete. So looking ahead to the future, and and I think everybody uh, in the uh, athletic director's fraternity in kind of the same boat is, is assessing uh, some of these issues long term. What what concerns you the most, the, the uh, NIL uh, lack of governance or free market uh, control, the uh, transfer portal as it's regulated or not? or, uh, or uh, uh, unregulated uh, uh, gambling on campuses, on games, or all? Well, I think all three, really, um, to a degree, is, is we've done a lot in terms of education, you know, on, on, on gambling. Um, and it's, you know, it's here, it's legal in so many states, so you can't hide from it. We just try to educate our athletes on, on hey, you know, here, here are the dangers, here's why you don't do this. And, Unfortunately, there's been some instances on other campuses and we can use those as examples of where, you know, athletes have, you know, they've lost their eligibility to compete, you know, because they participated. So there's clearly an education and a modern monitoring component um, towards gaming. You know, the portal, um, again, it's here to stay. Um, NIL is here to stay. I think NIL, the way it was originally intended. I think everybody was supportive, uh, but in some ways it's morphed in. Let's, well, you know, let's let's be real here. In some cases, you know, you know, you know, it's schools are buying players, and you know, hey Rick, you go in the portal, you go in the portal, and we're going to guarantee you X. And, and that's not what the portal was intended for. It's not what IL was intended for. It'd be great if there were, you know, if there's national governing rules in relation to to nil um that, that could be enforced it'd be great i agree with charlie baker if there was you know kind of a national database where you know we need to create more transparency around nil i think the one word i would use with when nil rick is there's a tremendous amount of mythology out there you know you you hear things you read things but what's real what isn't what is a kid getting? When do they get it? You know, what are the, you know, are there conditions in which they get it or they don't get it? And I think if there is more transparency, um, I think that would be helpful for everyone, including, including the, the student athletes. Locking all of the top minds up in a room and trying to resolve all of this is a great way to continue to move forward, but there's no certainty to it. And you in the room will also obviously help along with some of the other great athletic directors of our time, you, as part of your extension or your deal, donated a million dollars to uh, uh, Syracuse. Generally, uh, great. It also demonstrated a commitment that, uh, is it bleeding orange? Is that is that is that the metaphor? Whatever it is, 
It uh, is. You, you're there and you're bleeding orange in uh, advisory board of the Falk uh, College of Sport and Human Dynamics at, at Syracuse. David, obviously a great uh, fr- friend and mentor as well. Uh, future at Syracuse Athletics generally looking bright? I think it is bright. And I was uh, I spoke last night to a group in Washington and the word that I've used is momentum. And I think we have momentum on, on a number of fronts. Um, from a facilities perspective, the John A. Lau, the athletics complex, we broke ground um, in late September on a new football operations facility, which we desperately needed, um, a one-team Olympic sports center. It's going to be really enhance the experience for all our athletes. We combine that with, with the Ensley Indoor Practice Facility, the improvements we've made that we talked about, the JMA Wireless Dome, gives us a competitive um package of facilities. I think a Syracuse education, a Syracuse degree is incredibly valuable for any person who comes to our school. We've got a great brand. You know, it's it's a national brand. I would argue it's a global brand. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of momentum. And I think we're having success with on-field success. Ten of our teams were ranked in the top 20 at one point in their season last year. Um, so there's there's enthusiasm. There's momentum. There is a tremendous amount of work to do, um, but that's okay. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're on a campus or whether you're a media company. There's there's always a lot of work to do, but I think we've got uh, I think we've got real momentum, and I'm encouraged, and I feel good about uh, our future. Well, I think there's one thing that we can all agree on in the industry, and those who know you is that. Uh, uh, the college football is better for having you not only on the other side of the mic, but not at a network exactly where you are. Honored to be with you. Thank you very much. The grab bag portion of the show, we talk about the top gambling issues, tech issues, and philanthropic issues of the week. And there are many in each category. So let's go. First of all, on the gambling side, a lot of states getting in the game. Sports Business Journal summarizes where they are. Missouri's journey towards legalizing sports betting, reminiscent of a marathon started by Harry Truman, continues to face political hurdles. Despite widespread support and proactive steps by the state's pro teams, legislative stalemate persists. Denny Hoskins, a senator's unwavering stance on including video lottery terminals in any sports betting legislation, remains a significant roadblock leading to a potential ballot initiative driven by public frustration and backed by major sports teams and industry giants like FanDuel and DraftKings. Georgia's local approach to legalization is a unique strategy of showcasing a mock sports book in Atlanta and is pivotal in educating legislators about the nature of sports betting as a technology-driven industry. The hands-on approach has significantly aided in the push for legalization, with a new bill proposing to reduce tax rates to garner support. Minnesota, close to legalizing sports betting, with a bill that could unite bipartisan support by including tribes and track operators. The state's Democratic majority expected to prioritize this legislation, bringing it tantalizingly close to the finish line. Alabama's ambitious leap, considering a comprehensive bill, that would introduce a lottery, casinos, and online sports betting. The bold move, if successful, could mark a significant shift in the state's stance on sports betting. Mississippi's strategic position 
and early adopter of sports betting. They may evolve its stance by considering the economics of online sports betting expansion, potentially influencing the broader acceptance of the trend in the South and, and Florida ongoing legal battles. The Seminole Tribe's broader acceptance trend in the South. The legal uncertainties, potential rulings, could impact the gambling landscape across several states, especially with the relative casino operators in the middle, Washington, Wisconsin, Texas, and California. All of them are firmly on hold until we see how it all shakes out. Then DraftKings and FanDuel launches a mobile sports betting in Vermont as the industry keeps booming. Governor Phil Scott signed a bill in June authorizing mobile sports betting and announced in December the state had selected DraftKings, FanDuel, and Fanatics to operate its sports books. And with Vermont sports betting now live in 29 states in Washington, D.C., according to the American Gaming Association, the launching of sports betting in 2022 New York reported bought a $727 million sales tax revenue windfall its first year. The bottom line talked about a 26% increase in gambling problem-related calls during that same time, however, and other states are trying to stem that tide before it gets out of hand. Those are gambling issues. There are many, and there will continue to be many more. Let's talk about tech. The PGA Tour's recent overhaul of its ShotLink system, a 20-year-old technology powered by CDW, represents a noteworthy leap in the golf data analytics and sustainability area. The new ShotLink 2.0 debuted in test form at the RSM Classic in Georgia and was recently deployed at the American Express in California, featuring a hybrid power system combining military-grade battery-powered modules and solar panels. This upgrade, as explained by the tour's SVP of golf technology, Ken Lovell, enhances ShotLink's mapping capabilities to capture ball-in-motion data, offering advanced metrics like spin rate and axis of rotation. The system now provides detailed shot projections with attached probabilities. The shift Lovell likens to going from algebra to calculus in golf stats. I didn't take either. I have no idea what he's talking about. The new system, though, requires extensive setup at each event, with variations depending on the location. The expansion of sensors from three cameras around every green to approximately 120 cameras across the course has necessitated a growth in power sources. The backbone of the system comprises masts of various sizes, augmented with solar panels, and they can run autonomously, for a couple of days, and the introduction of more efficient solar panels, even effective in cloudy conditions, has reduced the need for extensive fiber cabling and manpower for generator fueling, leading to cost savings and a smaller environmental footprint. And while currently used exclusively for ShotLink, there's potential for broader applications, such as powering broadcast functions pending further development and testing. This technological advance not only enhances the PGA Tour's data capabilities, but also aligns with sustainability goals, marking a new era in golf technology and environmental consciousness. Good for the industry, good for Shatlink. How about the NBA? They've partnered and invested in sports tech firm Fastbreak for AI. 
software as a service, SaaS solution, into the scheduling process as part of the agreement with the NBA's partnership with Fastbreak AI. The G League WNBA, NBA 2K also included. And the league has also become a seed round investor in the tech firm through its NBA equity investment vehicle. Last year, Fastbreak closed a $5.2 million seed funding round led by Graycroft Investments from professional athletes in the area, Luke Keekley, Gordon Hayward, Whit Merrifield, Kevin Beecham, Kurt Katayama, Larry Fitzgerald, and Greg Olson. The NBA becomes the latest U.S. sports league to utilize feedback fast break AI for league scheduling. Includes ice hockey's NHL, Major League Pickleball, and collegiate sports SEC. John Stewart, chief executive at Fast Break, says the partnership with the NBA marks a significant step in applying advanced technologies to sport scheduling. The NBA excited about the partnership as well. We'll see where it goes, AI as an analytic tool and as a tool to produce things much quicker. Very important, and we'll continue to see the benefits for years to come. How about the tech third issue? Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment's interactive gaming experience, a new way to engage fans. When the Maple Leafs play home games, they now invite their fans to compete on the ice. In between periods, the video board at Scotiabank Arena displays a QR code that, when scanned, directs users to a web address where they can actually participate in an interactive gaming experience projected onto the rink's surface. The first edition of this new arena showdown is called Rink Racer. Fans in their version of the Leafs mascot propel Carlton the Bear around the ice. Each section's average taps per second tracked and shown on the ice as well. Brand new projection system last year for the arena. They intermixed the technology as well as the entertainment ability for this the Digital Labs of MLSE has built about three dozen games, many in collaboration with major brands such as McDonald's, the Canadian Olympic Committee, and Sprite. This first arena showdown contest, produced by Scotiabank's Scene Plus program as a partner, and the AWS cloud infrastructure is there as well. 20,000-seat capacity arena, pixel magic design, and the organization and the Leafs began investing and imagining new ways to engage fans in the venue. To deliver a compelling experience, MLSE synchronized the arena's projector, matrix board, speaker, and quad, and 360 LED lighting systems. It seems very rudimentary, but if you put it all together, it's short bursts of entertainment, say the people that are dealing with this. And as Scotiabank Arena embarks on roughly $350 million in renovations, MLSE continues to reimagine ways to infuse tech to make fans' experience more streamlined and more engaging. And those are all your tech issues. Let's look at good sports and philanthropy. Sacramento State partners with MMA to create new pathway to education and athletic competition. It's called Combat U. The teaming offers a new program that gives students opportunities for education and competition in combat sports. Combat U, Combat Sports and Martial Arts University, 
first-of-its-kind program offered through a partnership with Faber's nearby Ultimate Fitness Gym, one of the top mixed martial arts MMA facilities in the country. President Luke Wood and Faber announced the creation of Combat U during a news conference in January. Program open to all Sac State students, men and women, designed for participants of all backgrounds and various experience and competition levels. The MMA process has gotten some students to really excel, which is one of the reasons why this whole program was implemented in the first place. Good process, and the MMA becomes a little bit more mainstream on college campuses to help the campus grow and to help engage students even more. Second, U.S.-based youth esports platform Vanta has partnered with the Southern University Law Center to set up scholastic esports tournaments in the state's Louisiana. As per a release, the collaboration will see the duo create the SULC Louisiana Esports League. Vanta operates. It's a partnership between SULC's Mixed Reality Virtual Innovation Gaming and Esports Institute, and the pair will use Interactive and the initiative to inspire reality, virtual innovation, gaming, and esports. And schools in the state will be able to register their participation for free and can enter teams into the tiered tournaments, Fortnite, League of Legends, Tetris, Super Smash Brothers, and others, familiar names. And teams competing in the SULC Louisiana Esports League take part in the preseason and regular split from January to February before the top four teams in each league will play in a final tournament in late April. Founded in 2020, Vanta, an esports platform known for operating scholastic leagues in the U.S., Collegiate Management Group also runs it, and they have an opportunity to move forward as they develop their partnership. And finally, One Court hopes to bring live play to people with blindness and low vision. The CES, the electronic show in Vegas, introduced as part of its deal a groundbreaking device designed to enhance the sports viewing experience for fans with blindness and low vision, uh, developed by a group in Washington, uh, at University of Washington, UW. It employs haptics similar to those in video games and looking to be able to generate some better graphics and better eyesight opportunities, garnering significant support, receiving around 140 grand in non-dilutive funding, including a grant from Microsoft's AI for Accessibility program. The bottom line is the device was first tested in a live stream at a Chiefs game on New Year's Eve, showing promising results despite changes like challenges like latency and environmental factors. And one court's innovative approaches mean that the sports viewing will become more mainstream, which is what everybody wants. That's great tech, that's great philanthropy, and the gambling always a grand bag. Sports professor Rick Caro, and you are on the record. And it's at the end of the show, as we always do, let's look at the three to watch. What are things that are going to be popping up not only next week, but through the year, paying special attention to them? Number one. Where are the A's going to play in 2025, basically through 2027? Do they play with the Diamondbacks AAA affiliate, the Reno Aces? Do they play 
at the Salt Lake's B's affiliate, AAA, the Angels Stadium in the Las Vegas Review Journal story also talks about the Sacramento River Cats, AAA affiliate, San Francisco Giants. They could also renew their deal with the A's in Oakland, but they really kind of want to get out of there. And they are also talking about sharing the stadium with the Giants. They certainly will play at the existing facility next year, but then they got at least two years and maybe another before they reach their permanent home. MLB and the Players Association have got to approve it no matter what, so we got to watch that down the road. Second, ESPN and NFL in advance talks on an agreement that could give the league a stake in the TV giant. Everybody's talking about that. ESPN would take control of NFL media, including NFL Network, and uh, the CBA would have to be amended. The players would have to approve. But think of all of the implications regarding a deal between the Giants of the NFL and the Giants of the ESPN. We'll just have to think about it right now. It is up for discussion. That's why we're looking at it in the future. And then finally, Peacock's NFL playoff audience. Everybody talked about 23 million. We also talked about 30 million subscribers. So that's great. But the other unintended consequence, the game fared better in the young demographic than anybody thought. Rated third out of six adults 18 to 49 and second adults 18 to 34 of all the playoff games in that window. 10 million fewer viewers than the other games. But the bottom line here is it continues to be very important for the young demographics. So look for Peacock and streaming to be in the playoffs next year, whether you like it or not. Well, that's our three to watch for the week. We'd like to thank John Wildhack for giving his time, Callie Kazair for helping us put the show together, and you for listening and watching. Join us once again next week when we continue to go on the record. I'm the sports professor, Rick Harrow. Speak with you then. Music.